Kajala Medical presents COVID-19 The Answers, the show that delivers the scientific evidence-based knowledge that can safely return us all to our pre-COVID lives. My name is Dr. Fumi Okanola, and I'll be hosting the show. Every week, you can listen to me interview a highly respected professional about the science that can reduce your risk of becoming infected with this coronavirus. Welcome to episode four, part one, COVID vaccination. My interview today is with Dr. Craig LaFerrier. Dr. Um, Craig LaFerrier, PhD, is head of vaccine development at Novature Ventures and is an international consultant in vaccine manufacturing and licensing for Canvax. He led the GlaxoSmithKline pneumococcal conjugate vaccine team to a successful application of Simflurix. And he was a regional medical research specialist and medical advisor at Pfizer Canada, where he launched, among other things, the adult indication for the vaccine Prevnar 13, helping to stem the tide of the most common cause of pneumonia in our communities. Dr. Laferriere has an illustrious career that has included the development, manufacture and implementation of some of the most important vaccines in use today, which have saved hundreds of thousands of lives. These include the Haemophilus influenzae type B or Hib vaccine, the meningococcal conjugate vaccine, both of which primarily protect children from meningitis, and the pertussis or whooping cough vaccine. Essentially, Dr. Laferriere has been responsible for the delivery of a significant proportion of the first vaccines that children are inoculated with around the world. Welcome. Thank you, friend me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Craig. So, um, uh, what got you into vaccine development and are you um, in the process of delivering any vaccines at the moment? So, when I I got started um my interest in vaccines just after uh, I finished my bachelor's degree. And I got a job in West Africa, in Ghana, in West Africa, as a teacher at a secondary school. This was back in 1983. And the school that I was teaching at had a hospital associated with it. And so I used to go over and visit the children in the hospital. Now, this hospital specialized in um, orthopedic surgery. And there was a surgeon who would come down from Spain every once in a while, and he would perform operations to straighten out the bones of uh, children who had problems walking and so on. And one day while I was walking with the nurse uh, doing rounds, I asked him, why are there so many crippled children uh, in Ghana? And he said to me, oh, it's because of polio. And I was very shocked and disappointed at this because polio was a vaccine preventable disease. I had recalled lining up when I was in elementary school back in the 60s, uh, lining up to get the uh, the oral drops for the polio vaccine. So it was completely preventable, these, these uh, crippled children. Well, after that, when I returned to Canada, an opportunity arose to do a PhD in vaccine research, and, and I jumped at it. And that started my career uh, in vaccine research and development. Gosh, that's a fantastic and honourable story. Thank you for sharing that. And just currently what I'm working on these days is uh, the patents around the messenger RNA vaccines. So it's uh, there's a very interesting story there. Who owns the intellectual property and uh, who can benefit from it? What patents are expiring and, and which ones will, will be lasting longer? 
So it's, uh, and, and I think there, you know, there are some uh, great opportunities available for vaccine manufacturers to, to be able to begin manufacturing the messenger RNA type of vaccines. Uh, there was, for example, an article in the paper about um, several places in Africa uh, putting together um, messenger RNA vaccine manufacturing facilities. And there, there was a lot of concern about the patent uh, situation there. But uh, I think having a good understanding of, of where the patents are at and which ones are expiring uh, will help uh, to speed the way along the development of these new vaccine manufacturing facilities. Oh, that's really excellent. So you're actually working on a project that will facilitate opening up the technology to many more um, low and middle income countries so that they can maybe manufacture the mRNA vaccines on their own soil and reduce costs and create jobs. Absolutely. Oh, that's fantastic. Okay, so... um, Links to papers and quotes cited will be included in the show notes. I think we should start with a definition of vaccination. There is an excellent explanation on the World Health Organization website, of which I will read the first paragraph. Vaccination is a simple, safe and effective way of protecting you against harmful diseases before you come into contact with them. It uses your body's natural defenses to build resistance to specific infections and makes your immune system stronger. Please explain to us, Craig, in simple terms, how you would define vaccination in a way that a non-medic can understand. Well, I, I read that definition several times, and I have to say that I, I'm not sure I quite agree with it. I'm not sure that it actually makes your immune system stronger. What it does is it introduces your immune system to diseases that it hasn't yet seen. And and so that means that when the real disease comes along, your immune system has already seen it, already recognized it. And so therefore it's able to respond more quickly to the invasion and cut it off before it gets started. So it's more of a, a teaching of your uh, immune system. And of course there was something called immune memory and so it's actually teaching your uh, immune system to recognize something that is an infectious disease. Of course, what you're injected with is something that is a weakened or dead form of that particular infectious agent. And so it doesn't cause the disease when it in- is injected into you, but your immune system is trained to recognize it in the future. Thank you. Um, The way I kind of look on it is that um, it helps our body mobilize our army um, of white cells, which is our infection fighting cells, um, and helps to alert them of a danger that that um, that sort of is around so that when we're exposed to the real virus, our sort of our, the army in our body, which is our immune system, kind of our infantry and maybe special forces is like alert and ready to combat that um, sort of attack. How, how do you feel about that too? So again, I don't think that's quite correct because you're, if your immune system was on alert all the time, I mean, it depends on how you define, you know, alert, but, you know, you, you, uh, for example, when you get a cut or something like that, then you'll start to see swelling and inflammation. And that's when your immune system is activated. It's wanting to shut down any potential uh, cause of infection, but you, you don't want to have inflammation all the time because, mm. you know, that 
would be painful and you'd be feeling sick all the time. So your immune system calms down in between and uh, it is on guard. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's looking for any potential infections, but it's, it's more um, of a surveillance rather than Mm. being activated. Thank you for that clarity. Vaccination is medicine's single biggest contribution to society to date. According to the World Health Organization, there are 25 preventable diseases that have licensed vaccines. A study done by the University of Illinois in Chicago, um, dating from 1962 to 2017, concluded that vaccinations stopped 4.5 billion virus cases and saved 10 million lives worldwide. The sudden onset of COVID-19 accelerated the global urgency for vaccine development and distribution to unprecedented levels of speed and financial assistance. Current estimates indicate that nearly 11 billion doses have been administered around the world. Is it possible to estimate how many lives have been saved and hospitalizations prevented from the COVID-19 vaccines to date? So that's that's a very uh, interesting statement you read. And, and you read. And one thing that popped out to me when you said that uh, 10 million lives had been saved over 50 years, and that's a lower number than I'm used to hearing. Now, of course, I'm coming at it from, you know, the vaccine manufacturing side, and they do tend to uh, exaggerate things. But but one of the numbers that I've seen is that two to three million lives saved per year. And so over a 50-year period, that would be, you know, 100 million lives saved, which is about, you know, 10 times higher number than, than what you quoted. So um, I think probably the, the truth is maybe somewhere in between, you know, a low estimate and a high estimate, but somewhere between 10 and 100 million lives saved over a 50-year period. Now, getting on to how many lives has uh, the COVID vaccines uh, saved. That one's uh, very tricky because there's been a lot of other interventions at the same time. There's been, uh, you know, isolation. There's been mask wearing. Uh, there's the the treatment of people who have COVID has improved dramatically. You know, at the start, for example, the the death rate from COVID was as high as thirty percent, and now it's it's less than than one percent because they they know what it is that's killing people. It's the inflammation caused by the virus that is killing people. And so treatment with steroids reduces that inflammation. And so you have a much higher survival rate. I did see a number of that 500,000 lives had been saved from the uh, introduction of, of the vaccines. So half a million lives. Uh, but that, but as I say, it's, it's a very difficult number to estimate because of all the other interventions that have occurred uh, in this COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you. You conducted two studies into SARS-CoV-2 vaccines, resulting in two publications entitled A Snapshot of the Global Race for Vaccines Targeting SARS-CoV-2 and the COVID-19 Pandemic, Looking at Vaccines and Production, published in June 2020 in Frontiers of Pharmacology, and the second entitled Target Product Profile Analysis of COVID-19 Vaccines in Phase 3 Clinical Trials and Beyond, an Early 2021 Perspective published in March 2021, shortly after the first vaccines of the pandemic had been administered. Could you tell the audience what are the key properties that an ideal vaccine needs to have to protect us from COVID-19? Sure. 
So if you look at our papers, you'll see a list of all the um, properties or characteristics that the vaccine should have in an ideal uh, target product uh, profile. But really um, what it comes to, and some of those things can be, you know, shelf life and uh, administration, you know, one dose, two doses, three doses, but really the, the two main factors that make an ideal vaccine are safety and uh, effectiveness. And I think people don't recognize how much importance there is on the safety of vaccines. The, it really is the most important uh, issue or the most important characteristics that the vaccine manufacturers will look at in their uh, clinical development of the vaccine. And before any license, any vaccine gets to be licensed, there has to be uh, a large number of, of people um, vaccinated. And they, these people are monitored very closely for, for the standard side effects that you get from vaccines, such as uh, inflammation and fever and so on, but then also looking for the rare events, uh, the, for example, allergic reactions are a known side effect for, for many vaccines. And so, uh, so those things also have to be monitored. And so you, you need uh, a large numbers of people studied in the clinical trials, uh, at least 15,000, if not more, uh, to have received the vaccine. And this goes together to put together uh, a safety uh, data profile of the vaccine. And all that is essential for the submission to the regulatory authorities for licensing a vaccine. Oh, thank you for that. That's really reassuring, I'm sure, for the audience that safety is the absolute priority um, during manufacture. So vaccination is a major topic today, which has sadly polarized people in many parts of the world. Particularly unfortunate is the misinformation about vaccination that is spread through social media and other mediums. In simple terms that people can understand, I'd like to drill down to the different vaccines currently available that combat the SARS-CoV-2 virus and how they work. There are four different vaccine categories. Can you please give a brief explanation of each and the vaccines that fall into that category? Okay, so I, I, I gave you a, a link to a talk I had presented some time ago where I go into detail on the history of the development of these different technologies. I think you said you would get the link, make the link available to your viewers. Yes, I so, so if people want to go into more detail, there's a whole hour worth of details on these different technologies. But essentially, the, the four technologies are the whole virus vaccines, the viral vector vaccines, the recombinant protein vaccines, and the messenger RNA vaccines. And these have been developed over the years. Uh, and so I'll just sort of give you a bit of a historic background, and that sort of helps people to understand these different technologies. So the whole virus vaccines is, as it describes, it is the whole virus. And these were first developed around, well, the very first one uh, uh, was, I guess, Louis Pasteur way back in the uh, the late 1800s. But what it is, is you grow the virus up and then you kill it somehow or you weaken it. And then uh, and then that person is immunized with that and then they uh, develop an immune response to it. And examples of that are the um, uh, flu vaccine, for example, that's weakened by treating it with detergent that splits the virus or the, the polio vaccine, the SOC polio vaccine, where it's inactivated um, using formaldehyde. 
And then uh, there are some COVID vaccines uh, that use that. There's the um, Sinopharm vaccine and Sinovac vaccines from, from China. And um, in those instances, I believe also they are inactivated with um, formaldehyde. And they have efficacy somewhere around 50 to 70%. Um, so that's, that's a technology that's been around since the 1950s. Uh, the next technology to come along was the recombinant uh, protein vaccines. These, this technology was developed in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And what that involves is taking a gene from the virus and inserting that into some kind of other vector or some kind of other uh, organism that can produce a lot, a large quantity of that protein that that gene codes for. And then you purify that protein and then you immunize with, with that. Now, what was discovered back in the 80s that doing that, using this purified protein approach, uh, didn't work very well. You'd immunize a person with the protein and there wouldn't be any kind of antibody response. And it, so something needed to be added into those, those types of uh, vaccines to increase the immune response. So the adjuvants, and adjuvant means additional thing. Adjuvants were developed to increase the immune response to those recombinant proteins. And so you'll see that in, for example, the um, Novavax vaccine, they have an, an adjuvant, which is uh, comes from a, the bark of a tree called Quill A. And then also um, Medicago in Quebec City, they have uh, a protein that is produced in plant cells and then they have an adjuvant, which is manufactured by GlaxoSmithKline to uh, increase the immune response. So, and those ones have shown vaccine efficacy between 80 and uh, 90%. And then we start coming into the more recent vaccines, the viral vector vaccines. And the viral vector vaccines, are they are non-replicating. And the gene... Uh, from, from the COVID spike protein in this instance is inserted into an adenovirus. Now, this adenovirus has been genetically modified. It has had certain genes removed from it and so that it can't uh, reproduce. But it, what it does is it introduces that gene uh, into your cells in your body and your body produces that uh, spike protein and then that elicits an immune response against it. Now, there's a lot of technology going on there that I don't think it's worth going into right now. But if you want to know more about it, you can, uh, again, look at the, the my previous talk that I mentioned to you earlier, and you'll see a lot more details about how that all works. And those vaccines uh, only had about 70, 75% uh, efficacy. And that's kind of surprising because you would think that, you know, this kind of technology would, you know, you're getting the protein produced right inside your cells, which is how it is naturally occurs in, in, in infections. And so that stimulates your immune system, you would think. Uh, but what seems to be the problem or what is potentially a, the problem is that people have, are already exposed to the adenovirus. Mm. Uh, Maybe about uh, 10 or 15% in North America, about 30% in Europe, and even higher in Asia, up to 50 to 60% of people have already been exposed to this particular adenovirus. And so that means that when the vaccine is introduced into a person, 
it doesn't even have a chance to go anywhere. It is immediately attacked by your immune system uh, before it even gets a chance to start producing the spike protein. So that's probably the reason why those vaccines didn't have as high efficacy as, as you would have hoped. And then the final technology is this uh, messenger RNA uh, technology. And again, there's a lot of very interesting details and I go into it in more detail in my, my other video. But the idea here is that the, the messenger RNA is kind of like the working memory inside your cells. You have the long-term memory, which is your DNA, and then you have the, the working memory, which is the messenger RNA. And the advantage to this is that the messenger RNA doesn't stick around. It gets chewed up very quickly by natural metabolism in your cells. So there are some theoretical safety advantages to, to doing that. It's, there's no chance of this, uh, these um, messenger RNA integrating into your, your genome of your, of your cells. And then the messenger RNA codes for the spike protein. So the spike protein is then produced by your cells and then your body recognizes that as foreign and then you create an immune response against it. And so for that uh, particular vaccine, of course, we have the, uh, the, the Pfizer uh, vaccine, BioNTech, Moderna uh, vaccine. And those ones have shown uh, efficacy up around 95%. And so, and they're, they're, in terms of the time scale to manufacture them, they are much quicker than the other technologies. So, so this one has turned out to be really the, uh, the favored vaccine for, for most countries. Mm. Thank you for a really good explanation. Um, and just sort of looking back at what you've just said, that that was really interesting about why um, the adenovirus uh, vector vaccines didn't have as, as great an efficacy as the mRNA vaccines. That's the clearest explanation that I've heard. The fact that um, basically our bodies, an adenovirus um, is, is, the way I look at it is, kind of similar in a sense to a cold like virus am i correct so correct. that's common obviously um throughout the world's population so i can see now how our bodies would see that as an invader and and kind of prevent the vaccines from working as well as they could have though still very um they still have a very high efficacy um from what even the world health organization initially expected i think the target initially was about 50% efficacy. And, and and when we say efficacy, I presume we're saying efficacy against severe disease. Am I correct there? It would be uh, against symptomatic infection is right. the way they've been defined in the clinical trials. So somebody has symptoms, they come in and get tested by a PCR test, and then they, they find the virus present in their respiratory system. So that's... That's how it's defined in the clinical trials. Great. And um, with the mRNA vaccines, thank you, because I know there's been a lot on social media uh, with fears of them changing DNA in our cells. And thank you for providing clarity um, in the mechanism uh, to, to show that that is not happening. Um, and from my understanding, the messenger RNA is extremely fragile. And um, that's why it has a, 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 pro, a, coated, a protein coating um, that's been developed. Uh, because when it's actually released, it, it disintegrates quite quickly. Am I correct? It's, it's not a protein coating, it's a lipid coating, sorry, actually. A lipid coating, sorry, yes. Yeah. 
And yes, that's exactly it. And in fact, back in the 90s, there was a whole lot of excitement about, you know, messenger RNA and DNA type vaccines uh, seemed to work really well in mice. But when you tried them in monkeys or humans, it didn't work at all. And I remember back in the day talking to one of the scientists who was working on this, and he said he did a really simple experiment. He took a drop of blood and mixed it with the DNA. And within, I think, 10 minutes, it had completely digested the DNA down. So there are enzymes in your blood and RNA also the same thing would happen. There's enzymes present in your blood that just chop up these these molecules. So unless you protect them against those enzymes, they're just going to disappear the second you uh, immunize with them. So this little blob of, of fat, what it does is it protects the, the messenger RNA against your immune system. And then your body naturally, the cells in your body naturally pick up little blobs of fat. It's part of the communication system between cells. And so it picks up that little blob of fat. <clears throat> and then this is where the real interesting technology comes in. The pH changes inside those, those vacuoles. And when the pH changes, that allows suddenly that membrane to pop open and that releases the messenger RNA into the cytoplasm of your cell. And so that's how you get the messenger RNA inside without having it being degraded when it's open, uh, when, it when it would be in, in your blood system, in your bloodstream. Thank you. And um, as Dr. Lafayette says, as Cray says, I will be included links to his YouTube explanations about vaccines in the show notes. And I'm glad, and you've kind of preempted one of my questions in that you've already cited um, work that was done on the mRNA vaccines 30 years ago, because um, people have these fears that it was sudden and instant technology. But um, so thank you for, again, kind of highlighting that. And uh, that will come up um, in, in, in my sort of questions. So you've defined for us all the different types of COVID vaccines. So to what degree do each of these va vaccines meet your criteria for an ideal vaccine? I don't, I don't want to say anything to disparage any particular vaccines. In, in our uh, second study, when we looked at the vaccines that had been licensed, uh, or, or at least the clinical trials had come out by early 2021, we sort of ranked them <clears throat> based on the, you know, four, four criteria, um, safety, efficacy, um, manufacturing, and, and shelf life. And we ranked the messenger RNAs as number one, the uh, recombinant protein vaccines as number two, the viral vectors as number three, and the whole virus vaccines as number four. And what really drove that ranking was the efficacy that was seen in the clinic with the messenger RNA vaccines getting the, the highest uh, efficacy. But, but safety is also very, in fact, potentially even more important. And what we've seen since then is that the viral vector vaccines have been associated with stroke. And even though the, the, uh, cases of stroke are actually quite rare. And you have a, I know you have a question coming up later on about the details on this. But um, uh, nevertheless, the, the public has very little tolerance for any kind of adverse events coming from vaccines. So for example, in Canada, we've seen <clears throat> that the National Advisory Committee on Immunization has taken away its recommendation for the viral vector vaccines. Historically, um 
A normal vaccine development cycle has taken 10 years to meet the various vaccine approval stages. Yet the scientific community derived safe and effective vaccines, particularly the mRNA vaccines against SARS-CoV-2 in less than one year. How do we manage to accomplish safe vaccines in such a shortened time period? So I thought there's two approaches to answering this question. So one of them is to go into all the technical details about how much research had been done previously, what we knew about the spike protein from, from previous uh, coronavirus uh, you know, epidemics that had sprung up, one of them in, uh, from the SARS, one of them from MERS. But I think <clears throat> really the difference was simply money, the availability of a lot of cash. And, and I'll explain why that is. Uh, maybe I'll give a little example first. When I was uh, working uh, on uh, the pneumococcal uh, vaccine, the, I was a scientist uh, among about 11 or 12 other scientists working on projects. And when I had a experiment that I wanted to do, so I'd have to get the antigen prepared from the fermentation group, and then it would have to be formulated uh, into with the adjuvant and so on from the formulation group. And then finally, I'd have to get the animal uh, facility to, you know, inject the mice or the, or the rats and then get the antibodies back from that and then perform experiments to see how well it worked. And that cycle could take six months before I got that one experiment done. But while I was doing that, a competitor vaccine manufacturing company just finished a phase three study with that particular technology and had found very high efficacy with their vaccine and had announced that they were going to apply for a license. So suddenly the priority of my particular project changed overnight. And now when I wanted to get something done, it was done within a week. And when I wanted to get formulation done, it was done within a week. And when I wanted to get the animal uh, injections done. It was done immediately and the results, the, the serum samples were sent back to me within a month. And so it just sped up completely the time that was required for me to get an experiment done because it was given more priority. But really the, the thing that takes the longest and is the most expensive part of the, the vaccine development are the clinical trials. You, they first of all, they're very expensive. As I mentioned, you need at least fifteen thousand subjects, and then each subject, you know, depending, and you want to monitor them very closely. And it's a physician somewhere who's doing that monitoring, so physicians, you know, get paid a lot for for their services. And so, to run a clinical trial can be hugely expensive in, in hundreds of millions of dollars range. And so, the pharmaceutical company has its cash flow. And so they will, you know, run this clinical trial slowly uh, to, you know, have uh, rec start recruiting subjects and, and doing things over a period of time. And so it just, it just stretches things out. But for COVID, there was such urgency and that the money was available. For, for example, down in the States, they had the um, warp speed uh, government funded you know, they had billions of dollars made available to the manufacturers. And so now the money was available to, to run these things with higher priority, the resources were available. So I think the, the difference between what happened with COVID and what happens with other vaccines is, is simply 
the availability of the funding to get things done quickly. Thank you. Yes, from my understanding, I think um, Operation Warp Speed um, channeled about $25 billion into um, uh, vaccine development. Um, so yes, um, th that, that uh, sort of piles into significance to what a, a single company could access. Um, and so I can, I can see now that makes uh, much more sense. The mRNA vaccine appears to have come out of nowhere in the world of vaccination. Can you touch on the history of mRNA vaccines and how they became the leader in safe vaccination for COVID with such fantastic, fantastic efficacies? I know you've mentioned this um, in your earlier answer, but I think coming back to it, because it is a subject that uh, concerns people and, and I think contributes to some hesitancy. So the interesting thing is, is that if you look back in the history, the very first messenger RNA vaccine was actually published in 1978. And the, the person who, who published it uh, sort of it disappeared. There wasn't, you know, not many people cited it. They didn't, I don't think people recognized how important it was at the time. And it kind of disappeared, uh, like I said, until the 1990s when um, somebody tried something even simpler. So rather than enclosing the messenger RNA in a little fat droplet, they just used the, the, the naked messenger RNA. And as I mentioned, it seemed to work in mice, but never worked in, in humans. But I think people were aware of this idea of, well, they, they were definitely aware of this idea of getting messenger RNA inside a cell by enclosing it in a little fat droplet. And there's all kinds of different formulations that were being developed uh, in the 80s and in the 90s. And then some of the big breakthroughs came uh, in the early 2000s. So one of them was this technology for how to make these little fat droplets, a very simple technology, uh, just really simplified how to make these things. So that was one piece of technology. And then another piece of technology, which came from, uh, I think it was University of Pennsylvania, where they found out a way to modify the sequence of the messenger RNA to, to make it more effective in producing and being translated into a protein uh, inside the cell. So those, so that was the sort of the, the 2000s. And then by 2010, you know, we were starting to see more development of going into vaccines with these ideas that had come along. And at this point, you know, the major hurdles had been passed and it was simply a question of refinement. And so you can find studies as back as, you know, 2014, where they're looking at this technology for either an influenza vaccine or an Ebola vaccine. So the, the technology had was really developed over, you know, 30 year period at least until, um, and then when this opportunity came along, where it really evolved to the point where they um, it was it was known to be safe, it was known to be effective. Um, then the opportunity, you know, to do a large study, the funding was available to do large studies with it, and to be able to monitor people very carefully to look for any unexpected um, uh, safety effects that might not be seen in in smaller studies. So I, to me, that was you know when I in the summer of. Uh, 2020, when we published our first paper, and and I had been interested in the messenger RNA back in the 90s, but had forgotten about it for for 20 years, 
And when I saw that what was going on with the messenger RNA, I, I, you know, the thing that popped into my mind was, boy, if this thing turns out to be safe, it's it's really going to, you know, be great. And so I looked with real anticipation to see the safety results. And and as it turned out, you know, there there was a problem with it with the allergic reactions, but in fact, all vaccines do have, you know, people do have allergies, and so. I, I don't think there's a vaccine out there that hasn't been associated with some kind of allergic reaction. But these allergic reactions were very rare, somewhere less than 10 in a million. And also, we know how to treat all- allergic reactions now. People with an EpiPen who are, ten- who are prone to having allergic reactions, they carry them around with them. And so uh, we can treat an allergic reaction very effectively. So, so it seems to have passed the safety test so far. And uh, that you don't really anticipate, as I said, because the messenger RNA decays so quickly, we don't really anticipate any long-term effects. The the effects are are really going to be short-term within a, few, a week or so, or even hours after getting the vaccine is where you might see uh, the major effects. So it seems to be so far passing the safety uh, test and, and they've been licensed. They went from having um, a uh, um, sort of emergency use licensure to, to full licensure. Yes, no, thank you for citing that historical um, transition. And really, if you go back to 1978, we're looking at nearly 50 years of looking at this technology. It's not an overnight thing. And also you cited um, uh, uh, the numbers of people in the clinical trials, which for Moderna and Pfizer, from my understanding, it was 40,000 people that were sort of enrolled in clinical trials for each of those vaccines. So they were huge, bigger than usual. So the safety issue has been really taken seriously and also the sort of teams of scientists that have been involved over that 30 to 50 year period just developing little parts of 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 the puzzle Um, and we are actually very lucky that the that all those discoveries coincided at the cusp of a pandemic I feel yeah lucky I think but I I think there was also a lot of thought going in behind it and Really, in some ways, it was sort of an opportunity to prove this technology on a large scale. So there's no such thing as 100% safety in any vaccination. However, the risk factors are particularly low when you offset the benefits, as I think you've clearly demonstrated. One of the well-known scenarios is that mRNA vaccines can cause myocarditis in one in 5,000 young men, most of which is very mild and easily treated. The viral vector vaccines, such as AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson have reported side effects causing dangerous brain clotting, as you've again already cited, which occurs in one in 100,000 women aged between 30 to 49 years. How do these side effects compare to the rates of myocarditis and clots caused by the actual disease, COVID-19? So so let's start with the myocarditis. And you know, I, I think there was um, some controversy about that because I think the way the information had been communicated originally was was not done very well. And so the I had seen some reports where they were saying that the rate of myocarditis was going to be the same uh, in people who are vaccinated was going to be the same as if you got it from a natural infection. And I think that created a lot of confusion. But when you look at the actual numbers, and I, I look them up to see um, what, what we're, we're talking about here. So let's start with the messenger RNA vaccine. And this is where we can actually sort of compare apples to apples. 
So the rate of myocarditis um, from the vaccine, as you mentioned, is about one in 5,000 young men. But if you look at the rate of myocarditis in people who have had COVID-19, it's about uh, one in 1,000. So that means that the rate from natural infection is about five to six times greater than it would be from receiving uh, the vaccine. Now, the good thing about this myocarditis is that it's um, it's uh, transitory. It, it can be treated and uh, almost everyone recovers completely. So the, the chances, certainly your chances of getting it from a natural infection is much higher than getting this from, from the vaccine. Now, the other ones that's a little bit more difficult to get comparable numbers are the brain clots, which are associated with the uh, viral vector vaccines. And that's because the, uh, we, we can know what the rate is from people who are hospitalized, uh, but there's a lot of cases of <clears throat> COVID out there where people are not hospitalized. So uh, I saw, look, I found two studies. One of them was the rate of uh, brain clots in people who were uh, hospitalized with COVID. And that rate is uh, uh, for having brain clots is one in a thousand. Now, if you compare that with the, uh, the rate uh, from the vaccine, which is one in uh, 100,000, then the risk of brain clot from a natural infection is uh, at least 100 times uh, greater. So, so that uh, shows you that the vaccines are between five and 100 times safer than getting the, 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 the infection uh, as a way to you know, create immunity. When you hear people saying, oh, I'd rather just get the, the infection and to build my immunity, they're taking a way higher risk of having these awful side effects compared to getting the vaccine. Thank you. Um, that's um, an excellent answer to my question. And, and I'd like to emphasize as well, I mean, if you, ca- if you get myocarditis from COVID-19, it's much more severe and has ended the careers of, of athletes um, where that they've been in- unfortunate enough to develop that. Um, and, we, and we don't know whether that, that uh, heart damage is going to be lifelong or not. Whereas if you you are unlucky enough to to contract myocarditis from the vaccination. Not only is it much much rarer, but it's a much milder illness, which um, doesn't seem to have any lasting effects. Um, I also looked up some numbers about clotting in general um, and discovered because the disease COVID nineteen has some form of inflammatory. Um, effect and some form of immune response in our bodies and it creates a whole clotting cascade. So in the community where most of the infections um, happen, uh, the rate of a clotting issue, whether that be a clot on the lung, leg, um, a a stroke, um, is 1%. Um, in the in the general community of people that get COVID nineteen, if you're hospitalised and on a on a general ward, that goes up to one in ten, and and if you if you're admitted to ICU, it goes up to one in five. So you're far better being vaccinated than than allowing yourself to get this disease. Yeah, I saw I saw those numbers also that you're talking about. So yes, clotting is is very common. But, uh, but the numbers that I quoted were particular, I drilled it down to brain clots, where yes. this is causing stroke, essentially. 
Yes. So the public uh, were initially told that vaccines such as Johnson and Johnson would be one and done and that the mRNA vaccines were a two dose regime. The Johnson and Johnson vaccine has been discontinued in the USA and 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 as you said Canada and people are now being told to get third and maybe fourth shots of the mRNA vaccines. Why do we need boosters? And in your opinion, how often are we going to need them in the future? So I think the scientifically understanding why you need boosters there's the scientific understanding of it is not very clear. For example, there are some vaccines such as the hepatitis B vaccine where you get, you know, one shot when you're a teenager and the studies I've seen that 20 years later you're still protected against hepatitis B. Actually, it's not a one shot. I think it's it's two or two or three shots. So so for some reason that particular vaccine gave long lasting immunity. And uh, so you you can't really predict ahead of time which types of vaccines are going to be uh, long lasting. They, or at least nobody has yet identified what are the characteristics of the vaccine or even the pathogen that uh, lead to, to long-term uh, immunity. So it's, it's a question of something going on in your immune memory uh, that has not yet been been uncovered. So, so it was it was experimental to as we went into the new uh, these new vaccines. We just had to keep monitoring them and and following them to see how long the immunity will last to understand uh, when the booster is going to be needed. And even for older vaccines, for example, tetanus, it used to be that uh, tetanus uh, vaccine was considered to last for ten years, and you only needed to get a booster once every ten years, but a few years ago, they changed that to five years. So it's it really is something that we don't have a theoretical understanding of. It's just something that you have to study and practice and find out what's going on there. So, and then your question, second question is how often are we going to need them in the future? So I think it, it looks to me that this virus is able to mutate. And I know we're going to talk a little bit more about this later. But this virus is able to mutate the same way that the flu virus mutates. And so we have to have a flu shot uh, every year to keep up our immunity. So I think it, it's, you know, to me, it's very likely, it's very possible that we may end up having uh, to get a, uh, a COVID shot once a year or maybe once every two years. They'll Obviously, what they'll do is they, they'll keep monitoring it. And they'll see whether the current vaccine is able to protect against any new variants that appear. You know, for example, such as Omicron, we know that the existing vaccine has is reduced efficacy against Omicron. So, so those boosters will then probably be modified to be more selective towards the new variants. And I suspect it may become an annual or or biannual, semi-annual or uh, type of, of vaccine. Mm. How do you think, think the conflicting information fed to the public through various mediums about vaccination has led to vaccine hesitancy? Yeah, that's a tough question. I, I wasn't sure, um, you know, in particular, which, which particular um, contradictions were you referring to? So, for example, when, when people changed, uh, when the advice changed about you know, the viral vector vaccines. Um, did that create confusion amongst the population? I'm not sure. I didn't speak to anybody who said to me, oh, I'm really confused now. I, I only heard people saying, 
darn, I knew I should have gotten the other vaccine in the first case, you know? So this is what the government offered me. So I don't, I, I, I don't know enough about to say how that would have created vaccine hesitancy. I, I think you need to do a study on that to find out. And from my experience, I didn't see anybody who became vaccine hesitant because of, of changing information. From my experience as um, a family physician, um, and every day I'm, I'm, I've, I often come across people that um, haven't wanted to get vaccinated and I listen to them and then try and persuade them to get vaccinated. That was an issue. Um, uh, I, the population has, on, on a whole, um, I don't th- uh, think science is necessarily um, taught wonderfully in, in our state school systems and, um, their understanding of science can be limited. Um, and so, um, there's lots of different news mediums, um, the standard ones such as newspapers, the TV, and then social media on top of that. And it it did engender some confusion, um, and, and challenge of trust. So um, that was my own personal experience. I think studies do need to be done um, uh, to formalize how, how that made a contribution. Um, and initially, I mean, even though there's been a ban on the viral vector vaccines in America and um, Canada, obviously Britain is still using them. They're still, they're still part of the whole COVAX program. They're still good vaccines. I mean, I've seen studies on Johnson and Johnson that shows um, that the neutralizing antibody levels sort of stay at quite a high level for longer than the mRNA vaccines, which can have a much higher initial boost of neutralizing antibodies when you're vaccinated and then they can drop quite precipitously um, after six months. So um, even I, I think it's a pity that the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, for example, has been discontinued because I think it does still have properties, but people get confused uh, when they, when they hear that. Yeah. Like I said, people are very intolerant of any side effects from vaccines and especially one that is as serious as, as causing uh, stroke. Mm. So you can see why the, you know, the North American populations are intolerant of that. But on the other hand, when you look at how rare that is and compare that to what the rate is, if you are getting the natural infection, there's the, the benefit of it still outweighs the risk by a great factor. So it certainly worldwide, it's still a very useful tool to have the viral vector vaccines. Yes, yes. And and I had a conversation recently with a group of individuals in Liberia and also Nigeria. Um, uh, my own cultural backtra- background is Nigerian and some friends had uh, uh, were Liberian. And, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, they're hearing about our reluctance and they say, well, they're coming here through COVAX. Why should we have them? And I said, well, actually, um, they are still very good vaccines that have saved lives. And if I was in your position, I would, I would have that vaccine, and and so I'm I'm glad that we're both kind of underlying that. So um, people have become infected with SARS-CoV-2 after being double or triple vaccinated with the mRNA vaccines. Some have had no symptoms. Others have taken to their bed for a couple of days and felt awful. A very few have ended up in hospital. What is a breakthrough infection? Is that an indication that the vaccines are not working? So that's a really good question. And back 
you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, it was always assumed that breakthrough infections were caused by people who had not mounted a full response to the vaccine. And in fact, it was used as a way to try to estimate what is the necessary concentration of antibody to protect against the disease. But what they would find is that the antibody concentrations were extremely high in these people. And so it's not necessarily that you didn't make a, a proper antibody response. Now, there's actually just by coincidence, there was a paper that came out just yesterday from Israel, and they looked at 152 cases of uh, people who had been fully vaccinated but had breakthrough cases, and they looked at them to see uh, what uh, what was else was going on in their health. And almost uh, 80% of them had some kind of uh, comorbidity. And of the comorbidities, the, the top uh, three were uh, hypertension, diabetes, and heart failure. Um, but there was also uh, you know, another, some 40% of them who also were immunocompromised, so they wouldn't be expected to have a complete uh, immune response. So it turns out that there's many reasons why these uh, breakthrough cases occur. It's not just that the vaccine didn't take, but the persons likely also had other diseases that were ongoing that, um, that made them more susceptible to an infection. Right. So in your opinion, you think that the breakthrough infections are mostly happening um, in people that have uh, additional illnesses uh, like the ones that you cited? Exactly. Okay. Um, so do you have any understanding of why they're happening um, in young, healthy people that have no coexisting illness? Well, I don't think that happens very often. So again, you know, there could be uh, some uh, little part of their immune system, which is uh, not uh, operating fully. So that is, um, yeah, I think it needs to be studied to find out what's going on in those particular cases. Again, I could say theoretically, it's they're, they're immunocompromised somehow, which is what people used to think in the past. But, but what's really going on is they need to be studied uh, more closely to find out why those breakthrough cases are occurring. Um, from my understanding with Omicron, um, again, correct me if I'm wrong, um, that um, variant has ha has properties of immune evasion. And I know an, 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 an actual fact, I think there's some figures where in some instances, people who are vaccinated have been, uh, have, have, have high incidence or even in um, some cases, um, more likely to be have been infected with Omicron. I, I think m most of my friends or colleagues have been vaccinated, but have 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 had a significant proportion of them have have uh, had an Omicron in infection um, with the recent wave of COVID nineteen. So, um, in your opinion, would that be termed a breakthrough in, uh, infection, and and why is that occurring? Yeah. Well, it's. I guess it. You know, it just depends on how you define breakthrough, but that's a different thing. That's, you know, that's that the, the the virus is mutating away from from its original form, where the vaccine protects against. So, is that a called breakthrough? I I don't think I would call that a breakthrough. That's simply a, an escape um, variant that for which the vaccine is not optimized. So I, th I don't think it's a problem with the vaccine. I think it's just the, 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 the virus mutating. Right. So, and I guess um, 
underlining things is they they didn't end up in hospitals. So the vaccine did its job in protecting them against severe d- disease. So they might have felt, you know, very unwell and taken to their beds in some instances, though I think a significant proportion of people would have been asymptomatic or just had mild code-like symptoms. And that's the vaccine doing its job. Am, am I correct in that sense? Yes. Yeah. I think I'll, you're getting some partial protection from from the antibodies that you have are are partially protecting you against these variants. Right. And, 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 and do you have anything to say about the cell media, mediated response? The, the, cause there's two parts of our immunity. How, how is that working in terms of protecting us against severe infection? Yeah, well, that's, that's, you know, I haven't gone into that, uh, but certainly you have two parts of your immune system. You have the antibody response and then you have the cellular response the antibodies are sort of the first line. They're like a shield. They, as soon as the virus enters your system, the antibodies hook onto them. And then your body tries to either, you know, destroy them immediately before they get very far. But once the infection gets a foothold and starts infecting cells, once it's inside the cell, of course, the antibodies can't get to it. So your immune system has to have another way of killing that virus. And what happens is the, there are various molecules that are produced by the virus <clears throat> that your uh, cellular immune system recognizes as foreign. And the only way it can get rid of the virus at that point is to kill the cell that it is infecting. And there's a variety of mechanisms that your immune system uses to kill those particular cells. Now, one advantage of the cellular system is that the, the, those foreign signals that the virus has are much smaller pieces of the protein. They're, they're little cut up pieces of the protein called peptides. And those peptides will be the same if from, they, they don't mutate as rapidly as, you know, the specific um, parts of, of the whole virus. They, the, the virus has to keep parts of these intact because that's its sort of its overall structure, I guess you would call it. So these smaller cut up pieces, the virus can't change as quickly. And so that's when the cellular immune system comes in and, and sees, oh yeah, this, this peptide is being produced by this cell. This cell must be infected. And then it does all its things to, to kill those infected cells. So that's a slower process. It's not as rapid as the antibodies, but, uh, but it, works to kill off cells that have already been infected. And it has sort of, I think sort of, you could call it a broader ability to, to be resistant against any mutations that the virus is, is undergoing. The information provided to the public about the vaccines can seem confusing and conflicting. Particularly concerning to me is some of the misinformation that parts of the medical community via social media has peddled to the public with no accountability. How do you think this confusion has affected the public's trust in vaccine technology? Are there any other factors that have contributed to vaccine hesitancy? So I actually take an interest in this. Whenever I meet someone who is um, anti-vaccine, I ask them where they're getting their information from. I'm I'm very curious to know. Um, I don't want to go into my uh, conspiracy theory ideas, but but one factor that has come out that I've seen on several occasions is personal experience. So either they or somebody close to them has had a negative reaction to a vaccine. And 
frankly, this happens. You know, there are side effects from vaccines. We know the, the whole idea of a vaccine is to stimulate your immune system. And when your immune system is stimulated, it your body thinks you're sick. And so you, you know, you get flu-like symptoms, and that's miserable. But but sometimes these symptoms can be very severe. And so uh, so people don't like that. They don't like feeling sick after having received a vaccine. And, uh, and, and in some instances, as I said, people can get, you know, quite severe side effects from a vaccine. And so when somebody's had a very severe side effect from a vaccine, maybe even going so far as to have an, an allergic reaction or something like that, then that, that makes them afraid. And especially if it's somebody you love that you've seen have a bad reaction to a vaccine, then, then, um, then that uh, lives on in their, in their memory that they think, oh, vaccines are bad. Look how bad it was. I, and the problem is, of course, that the vaccine prevents you from seeing the actual disease. So they see somebody, they had a really bad headache for you know, a few days or whatever. Um, but if they had gotten the real disease, you know, they'd be hospitalized and possibly dead. But, but because they've been protected, people don't see that. And so uh, what ends up happening then is that they become afraid of the vaccine rather than the disease that the vaccine is, is preventing. That's an excellent answer. Thank you. I read a recent article in the medical news feed called STAT entitled, I trust my drug dealer more than I trust this vaccine, referring to a COVID vaccine. The article was mainly about the stigma in the health service that people with addictions face, but I think it highlighted some important points about being accessible, listened to, respected and treated in a humane manner. What's your opinion on the important points highlighted in the article. Could healthcare professionals have adopted some or all of these principles in vaccine delivery to the hesitant? Yeah, that's, you know, I think, I think this is the difference in the model between what we did in, in Canada and, for example, what they did in the UK. So in Canada, we had basically a public health rollout of these vaccines. Uh, you know, people lined up, uh, went through uh, you know, one after the other, and and it was sort of a, a a process. Whereas in the UK, they got their family doctors involved in the rollout, uh, which did, did not occur here. And I think there's more of an opportunity when somebody is vaccine hesitant to to speak to a uh, their their physician and have a, that conversation about their concerns. And so consequently, the uptake in the UK was quite high. It was about 90% compared to, you know, here at most uh, 85% in, in Canada and even lower in, in the States. So I think the, the approach uh, of using the family doctors in the rollout was, a, was an important factor in, in the high uptake uh, in the UK. I actually volunteered to work in some of these, uh, um, you know, uh, public health uh, mass vaccination projects. And my job was to greet people as they came in and you know, sort of just direct them where to go and sit down. And this one guy came in and he was, you know, a big, like tall guy, you know, very muscular. And, uh, and he so it was expressing some concern about being vaccinated. And I unfortunately thought he was kidding and I you know, sort of made a joke about it, but then realized that, no, he was really serious. He was really afraid. And, and he, you know, was saying all his friends are 
are telling him he's got to do this for the sake of his community that, you know, by, by getting vaccinated, you're going to prevent the spread of the disease. And so he wanted to do it, you know, because he had a good heart. He wanted to do it for the sake of other people, but he was clearly deadly afraid, deathly afraid of, of getting vaccinated. And, you know, he, he actually fainted at one point and he had to have his head between his knees. So, you know, he was, it wasn't, he wasn't, being facetious, unfortunately, like I was, he was really serious about his fear of, of having the vaccine. So I think in a situation like that, it would have been really great for him to have gone to see his family doctor and have the family doctor explain to him and taking him seriously about what his concerns were and, and uh, explain to him, you know, that there wasn't going to be any problem. So, uh, or, or that is, you know, in, in, a, in a doctor way of doing it, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I don't have that bedside manner that helps a doctor have a you know, person have a sensitivity to the other person's feelings. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Um, so there are two distinctly different examples of vaccine hesitancy globally that may have different underlying fundamentals or possibly the same reasons for vaccine hesitancy. On the one hand, we have the USA, a wealthy, fully developed economy with a population that has no barriers to knowledge about vaccination. Yet the USA ranks 65th out of 218 countries for full vaccination. Let's contrast that scenario with countries in Africa, which largely encompass low and middle income countries that historically have had populations that embrace vaccination. There have been reports that Africans are questioning and in some cases refusing the COVID vaccines. How do we rationalize these completely different baseline attitudes into an explanation for global vaccine hesitancy? In other words, are the reasons the same or, or are they different in both scenarios? Yeah, I'm not familiar with the work that you're talking about, but so I can only just give you an opinion on, on what I think is happening. And for, so from my experience in living um, in, in West Africa was that they really look up to the United States. The United States is a, is a role model for them. Uh, you know, they were always, you know, very keen on any, uh, you know, black uh, singers, you know, Michael Jackson was really big. Um, so, you know, black uh, Americans were very, had a lot of influence over people's attitudes, certainly where I lived in, in West Africa. So I think when they start hearing that Americans are hesitant against uh, uh, about these, these vaccines, it has an influence on them. I think it's, it's the American influence that for some reason, America, uh, you know, rejected uh, the vaccine or a large proportion of them. I think that had an influence in other countries that look to America for uh, for leadership. Oh, that's, um, yes, I didn't actually think of that point, which is a very good one. My own personal experiences I cited before with talking to relatives in Nigeria and friends with relatives in, in Liberia and other parts of Africa is that they uh, look at the same social media feeds as we do and hear a lot of the conspiracy theories. Um, and, and they, and, and that's what's put them off from, from getting 
vaccinated, uh, whether that be adenovirus uh, vector vaccines that have come along or mRNA ones through COVAX when they've had the opportunity. And when I've listened to their concerns and then explained, as we've explained in this program, the differences between the danger of uh, the virus and the the minor side effects from from the vaccines. I I, I know that there's significant side effects with myocarditis um, in the mRNA and uh, clotting, um, uh, cerebral blood clots in the viral viral vector vaccines, but the risk is still far, far less as we cited than the actual disease. Then they they have a greater and fuller picture of understanding um, and then have agreed to be vaccinated. So um, I think it's about um, sort of getting a full picture of information and also developing skills to critically think and assess. So that's been my personal experience, but I'm in agreement with you. I think there needs to be more research um, because there's going to be future pandemics. And I think we need to be better prepared in terms of our education. What do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, of course, when I was uh, working in, in Africa, we didn't have social media. And so, you know, the music was the social media at that time. And so there were, you know, uh, uh, anything that uh, it was in the newspaper about what those uh, singers were doing was was an influence. And I think now, of course, with communications being so much more rapid, as you point out social media, they see what's going on on social media immediately and it has all that greater I- impact. So mm. that's that's exactly what's happening. Mm, thank you. Um Looking at a very important aspect of vaccination relating to words that were tossed around early, easily early in the pandemic to provide the public a potential roadmap to a solution, but not talked about as much today. Achieving herd immunity was considered the way out of the pandemic 12 to 18 months ago. Can you please explain the meaning of herd immunity and whether this is achievable with natural infection alone versus vaccination against SARS-CoV-2? So herd immunity is a a term that uh, is applied to uh, the whole population. That's where the term herd comes in. And that means when enough people have uh, some kind of uh, ability to prevent infection, and that, that prevents the transmission then of the virus from one person to another. So, if um, I've been vaccinated and I have full immunity, and I come into contact with a person who is sick, I don't get the disease, and so I can't pass it on. And so, the more and more people that have that immunity, the less chance that the virus has to be able to find somebody who's uninfected that they can infect. And what's interesting is that you can actually measure the infectivity of the particular disease, depending on uh, how, what percentage of the population has to be vaccinated before you can reach herd immunity. So for example, measles is a very infectious virus and you have to have upwards of around 95% of the population vaccinated before you will get herd immunity. And then the virus just dies out because it can't find somebody to infect. The person who was infected eventually overcomes the virus, the virus dies, and then it disappears. And so you end up getting higher, really high protection from the virus. The virus disappears altogether. 
Um, but other diseases are less infective. And so you only need, you know, 60 to 70% of the people vaccinated before the, the, the bacteria disappears and stops spreading, stops circulating around in, in the population. So, so that's sort of a general idea of what herd immunity is. It's the prevention of the transmission of the, 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 the bug from an infected person into a non into a, uh, another non in, in another non vaccinated person because in between there are people who are vaccinated the the second part of your question is was um, can we ever achieve that with covid and this is why you sort of see waves uh, in these these epidemics you have the, the the virus sort of there's communities in in society there are people who you know, see each other on a regular basis. And so they're in communication with each other. And so before they've had any kind of immunity, the virus can spread through that whole sort of branching network. And eventually it comes to the end and then it sort of begins to disappear out and then the, the rate goes down. But then the virus finds itself into another branch of, of networks of people and then it, it comes back again. So, you know, is it possible that somehow you know, all these different sort of networks in society could achieve the same kind of immunity that the virus would disappear? I don't think so. I think you would just, for example, look at children. We don't have a, a vaccine yet for children under the age of five. Uh, so they're always going to be there uh, as potential reservoirs for the virus. And now also we've seen that the virus is capable of, of mutating and so I think early on when the sort of was hoped that, oh yeah, this virus doesn't seem to mutate very much, uh, that it's possible that eventually everyone will have either been exposed to it or been vaccinated. And then uh, eventually the, the whole thing would just disappear. But it looks like now that it is capable of, capable of mutating. And so I think uh, that uh, it's very unlikely we'll ever be able to develop enough herd immunity to eliminate this uh, virus from the human population. Um. So would that be the situation with regards to, because um, from my understanding, uh, we've never really achieved herd immunity without the implementation of vaccination. You've mentioned vaccination several times. So for example, measles was around for hundreds of years, smallpox. It wasn't until we had adequate vaccination programs that we achieved herd immunity, i.e., a big enough population, as you've correctly cited, that have been immunized so that maybe the 10, 20% who refused or couldn't be vaccinated were protected because there wasn't enough uh, places for the, the virus to, to go. So when um, politicians were saying, we're going to let the virus rip and, and you'll get herd immunity, that, from my understanding, that was a complete erroneous mistake to presume that that was going to occur. Am I correct in my understanding? Well, like I said, you would get these waves, you would get a, you know, a huge outbreak and then, and then it would drop off, but then the virus is very smart. It's going to find another network of people who haven't been exposed yet. And so then you're going to get another wave. So if you look at the, you know, the flu epidemic of, uh, you know, 1918, you know, it came in, in four, four big waves. And even currently what we're seeing now, we're seeing, you know, that we're on our, just past our, our fourth wave of, of the the COVID epidemic, and whether there'll be a fifth or not is is hard to know. Have, have enough people been exposed at this point? Uh, I I suspect 
there will be a sixth uh, wave at some point, but it'll hopefully be smaller than than what we've seen in the past. So. Yes, and um, and also um, the other important point that you brought up was that with measles being very contagious, um, uh, you would need maybe 90, 95% of the population vaccinated in order to achieve so-called herd immunity. Um, Omicron has, so measles are not the number of people that it, the number of people one person um, infects is about 15 if they're contagious. And my understanding of Omicron is it's Arnold is between eight and 15. So with with that um, variant, would we need at least 90, 95% of the population vaccinated in order to achieve so-called herd immunity? Yeah, that sounds like a reasonable guess, yeah. Immunity gathered from natural infection, it, it isn't as sustained as immunity gathered from vaccination. So it's not as long lasting. Um, what, what's your experiences of, of yeah, I, I did that. read something about that, but I can't, um, I don't recall the details of it. So I'm sorry, I can't um, fill you in on, on anything about that. Mm, yes. Okay, well, thank you for those, um, those points. Herd immunity, of course, uh, can be taken to the limit where you completely uh, eliminate the virus from circulating in humans. And that's only been done once so far. And that was with the smallpox vaccine, which was completely eliminated from humanity in 1977. We're getting very close now with polio. And there's just a few places left in the world where polio is, is circulating. And, uh, and so the idea is to get everybody vaccinated so that polio is completely eliminated from the world. And what people don't know is that um, measles was almost completely completely eliminated from the world. <clears throat> there were several continents which had been measles free for, you know, for several years. This was around the year 2000 or so. And then what happened was this anti-vaxxer guy came along um, and started saying that the measles vaccine caused uh, autism mm -hmm. and then immunization rates with measles plummeted and the virus came raging back. And now we're very far away from having uh, uh, the ability to eliminate measles worldwide. So it's it's almost, you know, it's almost a, a it's a sad story about how close we, we could have come to eliminating measles worldwide. Thank you for sharing that. And I think it underlines the fact that we've only been able to eliminate these diseases through vaccination. But prior to vaccination, we had huge and horrible ways of people dying and suffering with these diseases. They would come and go in our communities persistently, um, but we never achieved herd immunity until the um, technology of vaccination came along and we were able to eliminate those diseases um, from what you just said. So um, around 40% of the global population, approximately 3 billion people, have yet to receive a dose of a COVID vaccine. Variants are most likely to form when we have spread of the virus through an unvaccinated population. With this current situation of little access to vaccines to so many, I believe we could, fi we could, we could find we have a variant evolve that is able to circumvent our, our existing protection from vaccination. What is your opinion on this thought process? Yeah, so I'm, I'm not an expert in um, uh, evolutionary biology, uh, but my understanding of it is that it depends on, on uh, pressure. 
evolutionary pressure. And so what happens naturally, let's say there was not any vaccine. So you would have the virus go through and then it would infect all these people. And then for the virus to continue living, it would have to mutate in order to find fresh people to, to infect. Well, the same thing happens with the vaccine. Uh, when the virus comes along and it's not able to infect a person because they've been vaccinated, then the virus is forced to mutate in order to, to stay alive. So my thinking is that regardless of whether you have a vaccine or not, uh, if this bug is, is able to, to mutate, it's going to mutate into new forms where it can continue to alive. It's just, it's just part of, of evolution. So I think that um, in, if anything, you know, having the vaccine is going to put more pressure on, on the virus to, to start mutating. And, and it looks, unfortunately, it looks like it is capable of mutating. So it is able to escape the existing uh, vaccine and, and continue on. Mm. With all this in mind and uh, the multi-layered complexities and variables, is vaccinating the world a realistic option? And if so, how long would it take in your opinion? Yeah, I'd say why not? I mean, the why not vaccinate everybody? This is what the current as I was mentioning earlier about the polio vaccine, the current drive is to get everybody vaccinated with polio vaccine and to completely eliminate that uh, that virus from the world. Now, the fortunate thing about polio is it doesn't mutate very quickly. And so this is it's actually feasible that we could eliminate polio from the world. COVID has shown, unfortunately, a greater ability to mutate. So we're not going to be able to drive it away. But still, I, I don't see any reason why uh, you know, everyone shouldn't receive uh, a, a, a COVID uh, vaccine. And, uh, and how long will that take? Well, I think, you know, we're, we're still uh, looking at places in the world where we want to get the, the polio vaccine. And like I said, back in the 80s, uh, you know, uh, it had been already 20 years since the polio vaccines were introduced and they hadn't yet made it uh, to, to uh, West Africa. I, I think, you know, it, it just depends on uh, I, I think there's always sort of sort of a, a financial pressure. You know, they, they're saying that the Omicron variant is not as lethal as the earlier variants, and so you know it may not uh, it may sort of just mutate into something that's uh, not as severe. It's a it's a common cold, and then uh, places that you know that it, it may not. I said earlier that we might need to have an annual uh, vaccine against COVID, but if it turns out these new variants are are not as severe, it's just as bad as a common cold, you know, then the public health officials who make, you know, financial decisions based on this, they'll, they'll do their calculations and find out, okay, you know, how much is it going to cost to immunize everyone compared to what is the, the burden of disease that's going to happen if this circulates naturally. And when those two numbers start becoming equal, then, then uh, there's less it's, it's harder for the public health to justify one vaccine compared to another vaccine. So uh, I think, I, th I think, you know, the, I haven't seen any really good cost effectiveness calculations coming out yet about uh, how Omicron changes that calculation. But uh, I, I would suspect that getting the whole world immunized, I think at this point, you know, because there's been so many manufacturers that have jumped on it and have produced uh, you know, lots and lots of, uh, of vaccine. I think it's it's probably there's about enough vaccine out there that 
the whole world could be vaccinated. So uh, it would just be a question of getting it to the people. And that's a question of introducing it into the country uh, existing programs. And, and those are also, you know, not necessarily well-funded in a lot of countries. So how long could it take? Could be years, could be years. I think, I think that uh, maybe this whole pandemic has shone a light on on the the need for vaccination especially in in uh, countries that are on lower socioeconomic status and that there's uh you know more opportunities for foundations like the gates foundations that has been providing funding to help uh, bring vaccines to to countries that uh, don't have the financial resources that the rest of us have and uh, to make it more equitable so that uh, everyone has the opportunity to to have vaccine programs in their country and to get all the vaccines that they need to to protect especially their children Mm. yeah so um i think what you're really saying is well you said it the whole world needs vaccinating the quicker we do it uh the more chance we have of of a reduction in variants being formed because variants seem to happen when the uh, virus is allowed to run right through an unvaccinated population i think that's one important point we could turn this around i think you've kind of uh intimated in that we have such health inequities across the planet this is a a, a fantastic opportunity to maybe level the playing field uh get um you know help our neighbors who don't have the infrastructure that we have get vaccinated to help us all um i think that's a really good point you've kind of intimated there um, and with Omicron, I'm I'm in disagreement. I don't think that it is a mild, I don't think a, a variant that's caused sort of more death and infection in a far shorter time of, of tens of millions. We're looking at hundred, probably hundreds of millions of people is a more hospitalizations and death with Omicron through sheer numbers. So um, I don't think we're at, I think there's this drive to sort of uh, accept uh, the coronavirus, but uh, from what I can see, we're still in a pandemic. It, we're not in an endemic stage at the moment. But but thank you for bringing up those, you know, really excellent points. There has been detailed discussion about the role social media has played in misinformation for vaccination. Are there examples that you are aware of where social media has contributed positively to our understanding of our understanding of COVID vaccination? Yeah, it depends on what you mean by social media but uh you know i think that um certainly you know when you look at the 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 news channels and down in the states you know you have three out of four uh news networks that are you know uh being responsible and are you know making an effort to um feed people correct uh information and so i think there has been a i think most media companies have been responsible but i but i think the type of media you're talking about are things like twitter and uh facebook and and that kind of thing whose whose market is you know less driven by uh a public service and more driven by a financial profit and i think that um they aren't as careful as what kind of messages they they produce but i think the 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 sort of the old time uh, news media outlets and newspapers and whatnot have 
I've done a good job in trying to, you know, relay um, correct information uh, to people. And it's, and, and of course the, you know, it's, it's a whole new world about how people communicate information. And I think, um, you know, I, my wife in particular thinks that these, these uh, new forms of communication need to be regulated because of the, you know, by, by being sort of the wild west and allowing any kind of information to, to magnify as long as it generates revenue for some advertiser somewhere. Um, it's, it's, it's immoral. It's, it, uh, there needs to be some kind of way of, of uh, ensuring that something doesn't get magnified simply because it generates revenue for somebody, whether it's true or false. So I think that, uh, that there is a lot of media out there that does take this responsibility uh, of educating and informing and, and the truth. They, they do take it seriously. And, and so we're, 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 uh, we need to promote that more. Thank you. We've covered a wide ranging set of issues around vaccination. Um, can you please remind the audience of how the pandemic could have played out today if we had not had access to vaccines at all? Yeah, that's a very uh, difficult question. Um, I, I tried to look at some numbers and um, so how many deaths were have been caused by COVID compared to how many deaths were caused by the uh, flu epidemic in, in 1918? So there's an estimated 50 million deaths from that particular uh, epidemic compared to an estimate of uh, about 6 million deaths caused uh, by, by COVID. Now, uh, back in, in that day, they didn't have any vaccines. So, so you're looking at a death rate, you know, 10 times, and presumably they had similar kinds of public health measures like wearing masks and, uh, you know, isolation and so on. So, um, so that may be one way to, to compare it, you know, 50 million deaths compared to 6 million deaths that, that might be the impact from the vaccine. Um, also though, you know, that, that virus was different. It was, you know, it affected younger adults more. This, this virus has affected older um, adults more. So it's, it's hard really to, to really tease out exactly how much the vaccines have, have helped us. But I would say, I'm really glad that <laughs> we had this vaccine, because it certainly made my life a lot easier. Yeah, so. me too. Um, and my final question, I think you've partially answered, but hypothetically speaking, if the world was vaccinated equally, regardless of wealth and opportunity, how would this pandemic look today? Yeah, again, that's another one where it's it's really hard to know. Um, you know, when you look at, I mean, it's just because some places, you know, they don't monitor things as closely as other places. So, so for example, if you look at the death rate from COVID in in India and Brazil and compare it with the U.S., you know, they they are about the same. But on the other hand, those countries had access to the vaccines also. So, and we haven't heard a lot about you know, what is the death rate being in Africa, but, you know, there's probably not very good public health monitoring systems in Africa to know uh, how hard they've been hit uh, by the pandemic. So it's, it's a very difficult to know, um, you know, how, how um, more equality, uh, equity in, in vaccine distribution uh, would have 
uh, affected the pandemic today? I, I'm sorry, I, I just don't have a good answer for that question. So, mm. so um, is there anything else you'd like to add um, and, and contribute with regards to your knowledge on vaccination to the audience and um, the benefits of being vaccinated with a COVID vaccine? <clears throat> yeah, like I, I said, the you know, for me, uh, you know, lining up to get a vaccine, uh, you know, bringing me back to what it was like when I was a uh, was a kid lining up for the polio vaccine. It's it's there's a long history uh, of vaccines, and I think that uh, we need to do a better job to address the people who are vaccine hesitant. To let them know, you know that uh, the, the the facts. I think it's important to to relay people the true facts, the true risks. I think that um, vaccine mandates. Uh, you know, I think people do maintain the right to to be able to say no. I'm this. This is a risk I don't want to take. But on the other hand, I think society has the right to protect itself from those people. And, you know, to me, the idea of I wasn't necessarily in favor of vaccine mandates, but I did like the idea of the vaccine passport and that you could know that you would go into an environment where everyone had been vaccinated. And so you knew that you were protected and uh, and therefore, you know, did not have to be worried about being exposed uh, to to a virus. So I think I'm a little bit sort of reverse uh, about what people think i think people really hate the vaccine passport but but sort of ignore the the vaccine mandates and uh but for me i'm i'm the reverse i still i still like the idea of the vaccine passport thank you so much for your contributions today um uh thank you for the work that you've done um for all of us globally in vaccine development and manufacture um this has been yet another very um rich and uh, enjoyable conversation and um uh yeah so thank you for being part of this whole series well thank you for me it's been a, a pleasure uh, speaking with you about a topic for which I'm deeply passionate. And I really hope that uh, you're able to communicate with people and, and help them to overcome any fears that they may ha have about vaccine hesitancy and also to increase people's knowledge of vaccines. And so I uh, help in general for people to uh, understand what they're getting into when they get a vaccine and, and, uh, and, uh, and promote it to their friends and, and family. Thank you, Craig. And please do join us um, for our next episode on COVID vaccination in children, where I'll be interviewing Professor Melissa Stockwell. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of COVID-19 The Answers. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review and do visit our website kajalamedical.com forward slash COVID-19 The Answers.